one of the great things about being alive, let's start with that. We're going real esoteric here, is that you get all five senses. So it's not just the visual sense, which seems to dominate so much about sport. It's hearing and taste and smell and feel and touch, like everything gets wrapped up to it. And I feel like as a podcaster and as a commentator, I'm so often fixated on the sight part. Who finished first, second, third? How did they do it? What did we see while it was happening? But there's so much more to bike racing than just sight. There's so much more to it than just what I can perceive with the two eyeballs in the front of my eyes. And, you know, like the smell of fall. I was out riding today and somebody had cut the grass and it's a damp morning. It's not 700 degrees. It's 55 degrees. It's 60 degrees. And it has this smell. And, and the only thing that I can think of when I feel or perceive that smell of wet, freshly cut grass is cyclocross. It is such a part of what I've experienced in my life as a fan and as a participant in cross has been that part of it. And I don't know Bill Shiken, Cyclocross Radio, the guy who has put effectively cyclocross on the map here in the United States and in North America. Do you think that we as commentators are good at capturing the smell of cyclocross the sound of chains slapping against chainstays as they go over ruts and bumps, or the taste of of just good quality beer at the DCCX course, or GoCross, or Really Rad, or Rochester. Like these are all like the things that make the experience full. Hi, Rob. Hello, Bill. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm going to start out here. Uh, let's just uh, I'm, I'm, first, I'm going to start out by uh, questioning your qualifications as a cartographer. I believe that uh, many, many other people are more important about putting cyclocross on the map than, than myself. Uh, but I uh, uh, am, am always uh, feel uh, like I've, I've hit the lottery that I get to play a little little part in it. So I will say that. Second, when you started talking about the feel of things and, and how it felt like cyclocross, I, I thought that you were going to be trolling me into a, it feels like cyclocross weather. And, and, and I just, I just, I'm glad that you went other places because, you know, that's like the that's that's the foundation of my cyclocross existence is the is the is is the is the the ability to adequately perform this sport in any weather to the to the point that you could do it in the summer and if you can do it in the summer you don't have to go to Italy to show that you can do it in the snow so you can get in the Olympics. You could do it in the summer just like you do basketball in the summer in the Olympics and then you could put it in the summer Olympics. Is that like far enough a field as to where you wanted to go with this? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. I'm still trying to figure out why the world championships for cyclocross did not take place already in Glasgow. Because I thought if you have cycle ball and artistic cycling and mountain bike and every other discipline, why are we forcing ourselves to wait until January to put on cyclocross worlds? Why is cyclocross not cool enough to be in Glasgow? Well, I mean, because then you'd be USA Cycling, who, I can't remember the year, had two national championships in the same year when they went from January back to December. And then you would have the potential for Machu Vanderpool to dethrone himself in the same year. And, and that's that, that type of math. Like we, we like to keep things simple for the UCI and they still screw that up. So, you know, they would have had to move. Yeah. They would have it's something. Yeah. You're right. Cyclocross always is weird in the same way that, you know, you, it's a winter sport. So contracts end in January and people are just showing up December, 31st race in one kit and January one race in a different kit because they've changed teams. It's wild, but it, you know, it makes it fun. We're the, we're the, the, um, yeah, we're the redheaded stepchild of cycling. Well, welcome to Criterion Racing. Hi. The redheaded stepchild of road racing, where I hear all sorts of fun things about how it's not real, quote unquote, racing because it doesn't happen in Europe. And it doesn't involve a tour day something, but we have had an incredible season and it's over now. Like, that's it. You know, it's a wrap. We, you know, you get to this point in time in late September uh, where it's just like, okay, we've raced everything that we need to race. We've proven what we need to prove. Now let's go hit the weight room, uh, go hit the bar and do the long, fun social rides that happen in the fall. The ideal time, at least in the mid-Atlantic, to be outside enjoying life is the fall. And you guys in cyclocross get to enjoy that as your season, and we get to enjoy it as our drinking time. But we have to cover on this show those things that have happened since Intelligentsia Cup in late July in Chicago, in the warm center of the universe that is the Midwest. So we have to talk about Littleton. We have to talk about the NCL. We have to talk about Momentum Indy and Cone Gate. We have to talk about Gateway Cup and then Bucks County. I wanna start with the good stuff, the great stuff. We spend so much time talking about petty drama in life, and not petty meaning pathetic or weak or anything like that, but minor, minor dramas. Who has beef with who at any given time as compared to the real dramas that actually play out naturally in sport? The things that we have to worry about, safety at racing, course design, fairness in racing, Transgender athlete policies, you know, diversity, equality, inclusion. These are real dramas. These are real things. Let's not waste our time talking about the petty stuff. 
But let's talk about the really great thing. And this doesn't require anybody to have any specific knowledge about who won or what. This was the 19th year for Bucks County to happen. If you're not familiar where Bucks County is, pull up a map of Pennsylvania, take a look at the far right, down in the southeastern corner, you will see Philadelphia, and there's Doylestown. The very first time that I had you on the podcast was after Scranton, the Electric City race, and I brought with me this Lackawanna County Convention Center bag, or uh, I think it was a notepad, excuse me, and we were talking about growing sport. How do you get the sport better? How do you do things better? You get people like convention centers, boards of visitors, board of commerce involved. Bucks County has done that. It is a truly genuinely community run event. It's been happening for 19 years. And it also has been the one race on the calendar that I have had the worst luck getting into. One year I had a broken collarbone. Uh, another year, uh, I received a broken thumb, courtesy of the uh, twisty side of the backside of the DCCX course, the off-camber corner. Yeah. Then COVID, then a trial, which got continued on the very last day. And then this year, um, I got a cold, an actual garden variety cold, and I missed out on Bucks County. Bill, you've been a promoter. You've been a spirit of the sport, how critical is it to have an event that has the backing of a community, the backing of a small to medium-sized town, the backing of the convention center, to be in a position where you can proudly say, for 19 years, people have sponsored and supported us? It's if if it one if you want to be successful, it's everything. It it is the difference of you against nature as opposed to you being part of nature. If uh, being a cyclocross person, you you invoked Europe before, but one of the things in cyclocross that European races, specifically Belgian races, and not even the big ones, the smaller ones, the Ardoyas of the world, which are just like a town puts on a race. Uh, at, you know, those are the ones, Hulaham, you know, these, these small events, they are something that are not an inconvenience to the community. They are something that the community looks forward to every year, that the community is out volunteering for. It's welcoming other neighborhoods to their places. It's basically a party that they're throwing that has a bike race as part of it. And I, I think that's, that's a huge part of it that the, it's not just, we're going to jam this bike race down your throats. It's that everybody wants it to happen, looks forward to happen, making it happen. You know, there's, there's like, uh, uh, well, back back to Hulaham. At, at one point, it started on the the main road of the town. It took a right turn in somebody's driveway. It they they took down their gate, you know, their fence to their backyard because there's like a cow field, you know, a pasture behind their house, and it was raining, and and you know, uh, two hundred people just came. So screaming through their racing, their bikes, through these people's yards, destroying it. I mean, made, just tilling it, you know, making it, you know, nice and, and ready to go to, to plant for the next year. And they loved it. They're out on their porch watching this. They invited it. They want this to happen. 
take that to your, uh, you know, your, your local HOA and, and tell them that this is what you're going to do. And, and you'll just be, you know, marched out of town. That's, that's not, that's not the normal. That's not the culture. That's not the thing that we normally see. So yes, long winded way of saying, yeah, you, you need that buy-in from the town. Roanoke's done a great job of this. Roanoke is a, is a place that has done in the last 10 years has just embraced cycling, has brought cycling to its community and the community has responded and the events are growing. They've had the uh, amateur national road championships, I think three times going on four times. Now they have uh go cross, which is a UCI C1 and C2 world level event at Fallon Park, a park that really isn't used. It's it's like more people are coming to that park for this cyclocross race. And I think the community sees that that, that they're it's being used, that they now have a permanent cyclocross course in that park. Gravel. We love talking about gravel. Gra- the gravel headquarters for USA Cycling are now in Roanoke. This is all because the Virginia's Blue Ridge, this is a organization, a a visitors organization, a tourism organization, embraced cycling. And because of that, they saw the economic uptick that comes in when you have cycling events. And that's the way they can fill hotel rooms. That's the way that they can bring people to their rejuvenated downtown restaurants and bars and coffee shops. And that's exactly what you're talking about. That's what we need. It can't be us against these communities. It's just trying to spread the gospel of how certain communities do this right and how it is in actual, it's not altruism. It is an actual economic benefit to the community to have, to have these events. And you see it in St. Louis with their races like Gateway Cup. You know, it's four days of racing, four basically parks that you get to race in and around and the neighbors pour out onto the street, onto their stoops to make this part of their scene, to make it part of their life. I've never in the, well, I'm going on close to 20 years of attending gateway cup seen an angry dude or an angry driver. I was actually warming up, Uh, Benton Park, the last day, is close to Tower Grove. Tower Grove has this beautiful park that you can ride around and get good and warmed up. And I'm riding back. I am riding back to the course, and I swear you can see it. And this guy in a white pickup truck pulls up next to me right at the stop sign. And you know what's going to happen when a guy in a white pickup truck pulls up next to you on a bike. He's about to tell you all the things that you've done wrong and question your parentage. He goes, hey, man, where's the race? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, the the Sulyard one, the one down by Anheuser-Busch. And I'm like, it, it, it's three blocks up that way. Oh, man, what is that? Is that a is that an S-Works you're on? Oh, that's gorgeous bike. I absolutely love that. You getting ready? Are you warmed up? You got enough ice? Are you ready? And I'm like, this guy is probably in his 50s maybe sees a bike once a month sort of thing. He's not somebody who's going to ever fall into the category of bike racer or bike racer type. But sure enough, he followed me all the way to the course, got out of his truck and went to spectate. That was it. That's the type of things that that's the type of community involvement that 
I think we all need, and I'm hoping, you know, that promoters get. I know Mike Weiss in St. Louis has clearly invoked that. Lauren up in Bucks County, she's living that dream. She's not only doing her races, but she's volunteering at other races, coming down here to road guard. Like, these people are living the ideal, and the communities that are there are supporting them, and I love it. Yeah, the other cool thing that you see, because it's just where cycling is in in the U.S., that host housing is a, is a huge thing, right? And and a lot of times you can go to a promoter. Well, I should say before COVID, you could go to a promoter. And actually, this is something that I don't think has been discussed enough. This is a huge part of building that community that we lost that I think we're still trying to regain. It's having people open up their houses to bike racers. And a a lot of times what you'll find is that it's not necessarily a bike racing fan whose house you are staying at. It is just a person who is friends with somebody who's running this event or friends of a friend or somebody else is volunteering. They're like, Hey, you know, our kid moved out. We got an extra room. We'd be happy to host somebody. And then what happens normally is those people don't know what they're getting into and they go to the race and they show up and they're like, Hey, this is really cool. And then boom, you know, it's, 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 it's boots on the ground. You've just created a cycling fan and then they're going to come back and they're going to host somebody else, save them money, but they're always, they're into it. And, and there's, I, I am blanking on the city that this happened for, for a UCI cyclocross race. But I remember it was one of our top racers was staying at this person's house. They, you know, had no idea who this person was. It's not like cyclocross, <laughs> top cyclocross racers are big stars in the U.S. You know, it's just not the reality. But like the next year they showed up. I don't think they were even staying at their house. And this family showed up with signs for the racer who stayed with them the year before, like on the course side, cheering them on. I was just like, that's amazing. That is such like just a a memory that you want to hold. And, I, and I'm glad that we're talking about this stuff first, Rob, because these are the things, these are these, these positive outcomes that you see from bike racing that we end up not talking about enough. You know, it, it's, uh, I know it's, it's so cliche to say, oh, you never report the good news, but you know, it is, it is in this instance, it is sort of looking back as what has worked and what, you know, with the pandemic, what do we need to get back to, you know, that spirit to bring that back, to have people in, homes. I know. And, and I'm not saying we need to do that right now. I understand it's still, it's still not a hundred percent safe out there. And when we're dealing with a lot of stuff we weren't dealing with four or five years ago, but at the same time, it's just, how do we recreate that spirit? How do we get these unwitting and unknowing people to, and trick them into loving what we spend all of our time obsessing over? I'm wondering how cool cyclocross would become if And you got to follow me on this one. A little bit of pop culture here. Obviously, this weekend is a huge weekend in football because Taylor Swift attended a Kansas City Chiefs game because it's rumored that she's now dating Kelsey. I'm not really sure which one of the Kelsey brothers. What if Taylor Swift started dating a cross racer? If that happened... 
Well, you know, I mean, Walt's already married. You know, she'd have to. She, it, it in the U.S. I it, it would be crazy, but I I I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know how to answer this, Rob. You've you've you've. I mean, Curtis White is about the correct age. I also mar- also married. Okay, that's that. Great. Now we got to find a single cyclocross racer in his early thirties. We'll we'll ponder this thought a little bit deeper, but you know, part of the cool thing about Bucks County is that, despite the fact that it has never fallen into the series, is it still draws the big talent. It still draws the racers that you're just like, holy cow! I can't believe that guy is coming to Doylestown, Pennsylvania, on a random Sunday in. September after everything is done. And so, you know, like if you look at the top three in the men's and the women's categories, so let's look at the men. For example, it was won by Robin Carpenter, Tyler Stites finished second, and Kyle Murphy finished in third. Robin Carpenter rode a world championship for the United States. He was the only American, I think, that finished in the, the Doha course. Um, Tyler Stites has been on the podium twice now for the Pro Road Race Championship last year and this year, famously outsprinting a world tour professional this year for third and finishing second last year. And Kyle Murphy is the former road national champion raced on human-powered health along with Robin. Both of them made the jump to Legion of Los Angeles this year. You have serious firepower, serious street cred for that podium. And this is a random race in Doylestown, Pennsylvania in Bucks County. On the women's side, it was a, and I never remember if, if when you do an Oreo sandwich, is, is the Oreo the, the whole thing or is the Oreo the crackers and the sandwich is the fluff, but you have a Snyder sister sandwich with Kim Stoveld in the middle. Sam Schneider racing on the US World's team, an incredible talent. Her sister, I'm sorry, that would be Skylar, is the you know, US national team member. And Sam, her older sister, also an incredible talent. And Kim Stoveld, guest on the show, just a phenomenal bike racer with a lot of top performances this year. I don't know if the people in Bucks County know that they're getting this talent, know what they're watching, or if they just love watching sport, but they're blessed, they're fortunate, they're lucky to have this level and this magnitude of athlete in front of you. And maybe we just don't do a good enough job promoting ourselves. And maybe we should literally just walk around in our national championship jerseys all the time, just so that we could be cool. But do you think the average fan at Charm City or DCCX or Go Cross, the folk who who's just like, I'm in Druid Hill Park and I see this thing going on, I want to come up, has an appreciation of that? I I think that there are people who come up who have never seen a bike race or a cyclocross race and it's a bit of a spectacle and they kind of want to know what's going on. I think that despite all of our efforts the the walk up traffic to cyclocross races 
And I think I think it was, it's a little different in Criterion races, but in cyclocross races is a tougher sell because especially if it's not like just if there's not just a mud pit and it's just not you know something you can't look away from it's hard to figure out the flow of a race and what's going on people are all over the course where are the leaders who's behind that even with an announcer that's that's kind of tough to to suss out without having a deeper knowledge and i think that's kind of what we're up against you know it, it's a great it, it is a great discipline to start racing your bike if you're interested in racing your bike it's on grass you're you know if you get dropped you're not out on your own for miles at a time you know it's it's it is something that you can do casually. And then if you feel like you're, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. You can continue and you can improve and all that kind of stuff. It's family friendly, all the stuff that we know, but you have to be in the club. We would, we don't want it to be a club. We want it to be open to everyone, but it's, 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 it's hard to pull those people in. And, and the other thing that we are up against, and again, going back to the example I gave before about these small neighborhood European cyclocross races is that they are really good at shoving the whole course into a very compressed and compact parcel, which means that all of the people are also compressed and compacted into this small parcel. So you'll have a thousand people watching a race and it looks like 5,000 people watching a race and they're all having a great time. And it's a community. It's, it's, it, it is truly cities in America versus cities in Europe and the walkability versus sprawl in the U S our cyclocross courses. We're the U S we got land. We can, we can just spread out. We can go from here all the way to the other end of the park and back instead of just sort of sticking in one part of the park and making it easier for people to, to watch and to see what's going on. And that's, that's kind of the difference. You go into these European races and it's a vibe, like you are in it and it is just packed and people are having a good time and there's big screens and they're just, it's just a lot more of an immersive uh, experience. And I think that you probably find that in criterium racing versus Kermes racing too, where I, I think that you are able to be more involved. You see more of the race versus, you know, where it can get a little spread out and they can go away for a while and you, you don't know what's going on. So I think that's, that's another thing that we're up against that we're asking people to decipher a sport that's on its face seems like it'd be easy to decipher. You just go around a track and the first one over the line wins. But once they take off and once a couple minutes gone and they're on a three mile course, it's tough to know who's who and where they're at. Do you think that those people who are on the cusp of the club after they watch the race, after somebody has explain to them the bare minimum of first person over the line wins. And that's the first person currently. Do you think that they appreciate how exceptional the talent is compared to what they can do? Famously, uh, we have 
you know, we've got the benefit of having peak Tim on the wide angle podium. Tim Hayes, the super rookie who, you know, has made the claim that peak Tim could finish a lap on the Champs-Élysées in the Tour de France, you know, with the pros. We can all pause and ponder that thought uh, for anybody who's ever ridden a race with him. But the reality is, is that as you progress up, you realize the distance between you and the people at the top of the sport, you know, becomes wider, not less. You know, you look at Marlies Mejas Garcia, the bike racer for 2024, who won four days in a row at Gateway Cup. Every single day this year, she won against legitimate talent. You know, you have to realize that she is exceptionally good at what she does. Or you look at somebody like Danny Summerhill, who just found a way to win time and time again in hard races against all these 22-year-old, 23-year-old peak form athletes who are just like, I want to win too. Do you think that the fans appreciate that? Jonas Vinegar is five foot nine and 132 pounds. That's just like average dude, right? I see Jonas and I'm like, nah, I can take him. Right? Like so that that's the difference. Like people talk about anybody can ride a bike. You ride a bike as a kid, right? That's 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 the that's the shock jock thing we hear all the time. So it's like what what people in the Tour de France do isn't anything special. My grandmother rides a bike. And then you look at the people who are doing it who are just these superstars who are just head and shoulders above the rest. And, you know, they're, they're, they, they are not imposing characters. Like people, people are like, I can't go survive a set of downs in the NFL. I I would be dead if any of those folks hit me. But these are just normal looking people who are doing this. And I, I think that's the big difference is that it lo- it's a sport that looks like it's being done by by average joes versus superheroes i like that you like that you say they look like average people but the reality is i'm 510 so i'm an inch taller than Jonas, and i never know if it's vingegaard or vingago um i watch too much bob roll and paul's or phil excuse me so i i stumbled over that last syllable because i i just like vintagey and then we and then you just fill in the rest however you want. He is 40 pounds lighter than me. If you saw him standing next to me, I would be massive. And I'm well below average weight for my height sort of thing. He's a waif. It seems to be more the case for the men than it does for the women. And I've actually had nutritionists explain to me why. That's the case, but we can go beyond that. But you've got something to say, and I, I, I'm not going to cut you off. 
Well, I just, I just saying that you, 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 I don't know the point that you're making. I think it's my point because I am seeing that, that this person is malnourished next to you. And I'm thinking, well, that is not an athletically superior person to you, Rob. That's the point that you're making. And it's like the whole, you know, John Crook is a baseball player, you know, with tobacco in his mouth and 40 pounds overweight. And a woman goes, aren't you supposed to be an elite athlete? And his response was, ma'am, I'm a baseball player. One of the best. One of the greatest. That's it. Speaks for, yes, one of the greats. But like, there's nothing imposing about Jonas. Until you go, oh, you're Jonas. Oh, you're Sepp Kuss. You're Annemiek van Vluten, you know? The the name comes with it. Brings the results with it. Brings the, oh my God, that is Matthew Vanderpool. He has won every discipline that possibly could ever be made. Oh, there's Tom Pidcock. But like, you you just see these people and they're just normal. Yeah, it's what you would have to do to prove to somebody what they can do is, you know, put put them at the bottom of a hill. Go, okay, here's you. Here's well, hill hill doesn't even work because they're gonna be like, oh, they're much lighter than me. Let's go. I'm I'm sorry, Criterium Nation folks. We're we're doing a lot of cyclocross analogies here, but let's let's do cyclocross. I I will put you on a bike next to Puck Peterson on a flat field with long grass and she will float over it at 25 miles per hour like it's nothing and you are going to get bogged down within the first 10 feet and then by the first 50 feet you're going to be like breathing through your ears because it's going to be so hard and that's it but it's hard to explain that to people without giving them the experience, because if you just watch her ride across the field, you don't have any appreciation. She's just riding a bike across a grassy field. But the ease and the power that she's and the, the finesse and the technique that she's able to do this is is mind boggling if you actually have some knowledge. And again, that's kind of the club. Like you have to know all of this stuff to know that what you're looking at is hard. It doesn't translate on video as well. You can, when you play football, soccer, baseball, maybe they've just got better technique when it comes down to the way that they broadcast this. But when I go to Charm City this Sunday, or when I was at Intelligentsia, when you see these athletes do what they do, you can appreciate it. When you hear the sound of the tires and you hear the clunking of gears or the warm breeze that follows the Peloton through a corner, you know, you can appreciate it better. Our video and coverage is so antiseptic right now. It is, it, it just, when it exists, it's just not doing Skylar Schneider justice. It is not doing Kim Stovell the justice that these athletes deserve, but it's the best we got, I guess. But it's also, it's, it's kind of that catch 22 that we're stuck in because that's the way, that is the best way you were like, is somebody going to understand this just showing up at a race without never seeing it before and seeing it live? 
the we're old. We still call things TV. The TV version of this is the best way to bring people in if it's done well from the commentators explaining what's going on to just how the racing action is produced. Like you don't go usually, you don't go, hey, I'm going to spend $120 on this band I've never heard of before and see their live music, see them live, see the performance and then go, oh, that was pretty awesome. I'm going to buy their album. It may happen. But usually it's, I know I'm aging myself again, stream it. Uh, You know, usually you listen to the music. You're like, this is a really cool band. I really like this band. I'm enjoying this experience I am having in my home where I'm able to, to learn more about what I like, and then I'll go see that live, right? That's, that's the way we're supposed to do it. And then if we just talk about sport itself, you go back to the NFL. Well, that looks great on TV because again, we already talked about poor Jonas and how he's, you know, slight where you have people who are just pop off the TV because they're just massive. You know, I always, I was loved it. You know, I played basketball. I'm six foot four. I'm small. I know I'm small. I ended as a slow shooting guard when I actually got good enough to play with people who were doing things in basketball. It's, it's like a different species and that translates well to TV. I mean, that looks good, but it is, it really is, it is really our best tool if we can get people into it. If you can get somebody watching a cyclocross race or a criterium on TV, I think it can be, they can be made for TV sports. I think it can be a better experience when I'm watching uh, Tulsa on TV I'm into it and I like it because I can see every corner. I can see the breaks happening. I can see who's chasing. I'm, I have somebody telling me what the gaps are and, and that's engaging as opposed to if I'm just standing on the corner. Now I've done that a lot so I can go stand on the corner and I know what's going on, but I can't just walk up and stand on the corner and have any idea what's going on. But if I were if to have access to that good production, then I could get engaged in that sport. The last thing uh, about just since we're talking about sports not looking good on TV, the other thing that we run up against and and there's this bullshit argument about like the WNBA is not the same as the NBA because the guys in the NBA can dunk and it's a faster game and all this kind of stuff. And it's crap. It's like it's, it's what we always say in cyclocross. People are like, that's a boring course. And I'm going, no. There are no boring courses because it's the racers who make the race in the same way in the sports that the athletes make the game in, in, in car racing, you have all different classes of cars. You have F1, you have F2, you have F3. You don't say, well, F2 doesn't mean anything because F1 cars are faster, you know, or the, or NASCAR or everything else. It's all different. If you really love sports, what you are engaged in is the people competing against each other in that sport. You're not comparing them to other sports. So, and and so that's, that's, I think a mindset that I think if people got over that as well and just embraced what they are watching and tried to learn about it, you become a fan and then you become obsessed about it. It doesn't take much. I mean, if you are the person who likes competition, you can find competition in everything. The trick for us is how do we get people to find that compelling competition in bike racing?
one final point on this topic is Daniel Holloway. Uh, Gateway Cup, the Hill, third day of the series. Daniel put on four pounds, I think, of extra equipment and a GoPro or some type of camera. And he did live commentary inside the race. I watched it a couple days later um, while I was sick, not able to attend Bucks County. And it was literally the most instructive educational bike racing experience that I ever had the pleasure of watching. Watching and at the same time having him describe what he was doing and describe how he was thinking about things and then watching him execute and or not execute was just incredible. And I can't wait for next year or more. This is the organic thing that I love. Let's see how people push the technology. Well, it's the same like the Mannings doing it, right? For football. It's it's casual. It's informal. You feel like you're just sitting in the room with them. That's, that's, that is it. That's kind of like breaking down those more formal barriers, sort of these old school uh, broadcasting barriers and trying to, to present this in a form that I think mostly younger viewers are more used to seeing. I mean, we live in a much more informal media landscape but anybody can create media these days you know and it's amazing i love it i love that's a thing but that's that's kind of what you have to tap into to uh, have have people embrace the sport i don't know i'm saying the same thing over and over in different ways rob i think we did it i love it we've did it so let's talk about cone gate uh working a little bit backwards because it's comical to a certain extent uh momentum indie the second day of the two-day race series is the Indy Crit. Downtown Indianapolis, wide streets, um, a lot of like fun civic municipal center buildings that are good for snowy mountain photographers to take pictures of. They make it look great. But the last corner of the course is kind of a two-part corner. And so... Instead of it being all right angles, the final stretch into the finishing stretch is oblique. It's a word my grandfather told me when he wanted me to cut the grass on an angle. You need to do it on an oblique. And I'm like, the war ended in 1945, Grandpa. We can move on. But instead of that oblique angle road, which was neither wet north nor south nor east nor west, hitting an east-west road would have been a lazy right-hander. Indy wanted to make things more complicated, so it's a left-hand bend into a right-hand corner. So there's a flowing part of it. There's a great uh, photo that we put on Instagram of how it works et cetera, et cetera. Go there, take a look at it. But the fun thing is, is that intersection had a traffic island in it. And the traffic island needed to be sectioned off so that you don't go over the curbs. Well, Danny Summerhill went through the curb cuts on the traffic island during the final lap. And that proved to be critical because he won the race, or at least he finished first in that race. He was later relegated for leaving the course. Now you're going to ask, how does any of this make sense? Why didn't they do a better job? 
Why didn't they barrier that off? We talked to the promoter of Momentum Indie. We talked about why it was run the way it was run and why they chose to put the barriers where they were and cones where they were. So fencing sections are 10 feet long. They're made of metal. They don't bend. They don't go over curbs. And the way that this fencing was set up, it just would not have permitted them to do it in a safe way, to bring it up over the curb onto the, onto the island and then meet together with the other section. It would be a peak. The last thing in the world that you want on a criterium course is a peak on the final corner where riders are putting their shoulders into it. Okay, that makes sense. Why the cones? What were the cones there for? The cones were set up in order to show that this was out of bounds. Why were the cones laying over as opposed to standing straight up? The decision was made that it would make more sense to lay the cones over to provide directional guidance to the riders, as in you ride on the way out of the arrow, not on the way in of the arrow. There just happened to be a curb cut for ADA purposes that Daniel Hollow, Daniel, uh, Danny Summerhill was able to exploit through the middle. It was out of bounds. Should they have put more cones there? I guess so. That's what they'll do next year. Were they told about it beforehand? I don't know. Once the race starts, once the race is set up, it's the official's job. It's not the promoter's job. What did the officials say? I don't know. Is it fair to relegate Danny Summerhill in that situation, Bill? A couple more questions for you, Rob. Is there a tech guide for this race? There might be. There, there very well might be. If you give me a second, I can look it up, but I can definitely tell you that the maps that are provided for the race do not demonstrate the corners. Okay. And they do not say specifically for this corner, this is, this is out of bounds. Not that, not on the maps. Right. And we don't know that the officials told the field at the beginning of the race, but if it's not on the map, I'm going to guess it's not in the tech guide. That's, 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 that's before you hand it over to the officials. You're correct. They do run the race. I, you know, when we have our events, I always, you know, one of the things I tell everybody is like, look, our job is to get it to 815. We have to get everything, all of our ducks in a row. Everything has to be set up. All the volunteers have to be in place. 815, it's USA Cycling's problem. You know, we, we got to take, it's still, you know, that's sort of the gist of it. We, we hand over the keys to them and they run the race. So I think that right there you you have a the, the first part of it. If this is something that you foresaw beforehand, it should have been on the map. It should be in the tech guide. That's, that is such a huge part, especially I, I cover a lot of mountain biking and mountain biking because it's so crucial that you have to know everything about the course and it has to be detailed in the tech guide for, for people to follow because you have a much greater chance of being injured if something's wrong. I, I question, I, I understand that you can't use barricades. I, I get that. I agree with that decision. However, there are middle steps that you could take between barricades and cones. Let's say, for instance, the good old standby hay bale. 
let's put a little wall of hay bales and through the cutaway and everything else. And then if you want to put your cones on top of the hay bales, you can do that as well. I know Danny raced some cyclocross. I think it was before the era where it was mandatory that you had to be able to ride barriers. So I don't know that he's riding over hay bales. So that's 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 one thing that could be done that's preventative. But that doesn't that doesn't answer the question. That doesn't answer the question what should have been done here. I think without any instruction, without being told anything, cones on a course inside the barriers mean absolutely nothing. It just, it doesn't, it, it does not have the, it does not tell the rider what to do. It could be because there's a pothole there. It could be because as a promoter, we just want to make sure that there's a curb there, but it doesn't mean don't go over the curb. So I, I thought that it was more of a crafty move and that he should not have been relegated. I will, I will tell one, one story similar to this and, and a rule change that USA cycling actually made. So in, in cyclocross, this is why, why I think about these things in cyclocross, we purposefully put obstacles in the way for riders to have to deal with you know the traditional ones are, are are planks you know these 40 centimeter high planks that you either have to dismount and run over and get back on or or you know nowadays it's just you ride over them that's on purpose now what happens what used to happen a lot more is that your newer uh race organizers normally they don't have especially at the lower level they don't have enough fencing for the whole thing so it's going to be stakes and it's going to be tape and that's how you are going to tell the riders what's inbounds what's outbounds you can't go outside the tape everything has to happen between the tape a new promoter will make the mistake of not putting the stake right next to the plank like perpendicular so they're touching so they are solid you do that to make sure that nobody can ride around the plank. They can't push out the tape, still stay within the tape, and then ride around it. And that's what used to happen all the time if you were not a savvy promoter who staked off your barriers. People would just ride right around them. This happened in a UCI race. Zach McDonald saw that the promoter, which never happened in a UCI race, was sloppy in setting up their course and he rode around the barriers, the planks. And there was an official there. And this isn't a rule. And the official, and this is just amazing. It's one of the greatest cyclocross stories in the U.S. This official on the fly, this kind of like forward thinking, taking control, good upper management decision. He told Zach McDonald after he rode around that he had to go back and he had to ride the barriers twice. During a race, this was just this rule, this decision that he made up. And Zach's looking at him like he's insane, but he went and did it. And I'm sure he still got on the podium. But it's just this great thing that this official just decided, what you did I don't think is right. I'm going to make up some sort of punishment that you have to undergo before you can continue racing. It was the greatest thing ever. What happened after that was that USA Cycling actually changed the rule. And you'll love this as, as an attorney, Rob. The rule that they put into place was that you had to follow the intent of the promoter in the course design. 
the intent you had to go inside of the promoter's head you had to do a deep dive into their brain what is in this person's soul as far as course design goes what is their intent is their intent to allow me to ride around this thing or is it its intent to go over it and 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 that's that's kind of what i see for this instance here i'm wondering if it's easier to discern the spirit of gravel than it is the intent of a race promoter sometimes. Exactly. Thank you. Perfectly done. And so that's, that's why I say, I don't know what these cones mean. You got an advantage. Take advantage of it. It is nowhere in the tech guide. It is unexplained. And in fact, according to the tech guide, that left-hand bend does not exist. Right. And you know that you have to stay within those barriers. That's it. That's where the that's that's where the racing takes place. How much fun do you want to have now talking about the NCL? <laughs> I I've just <laughs> I, I I've just been up here stalling. I've been trying to use my time until you go, well, we ran out of time. I'm gonna have to find somebody else to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You have been drafted, voluntold. Uh, do you know what Navy stands for? Uh, hit me with it. Never again volunteer yourself. <laughs> Love it. God bless my job. So uh, my, my, fi my filibuster has failed. There you go. You are now dragged into discussing everything about the NCL. Let's get out with the good. The NCL put on three events this year two of them taking place in the last month of the season during august a parking lot criterium held in beautiful commerce colorado i think it is around the dick sporting goods football stadium that's soccer version of football and then a road race course held under the landing threshold of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, the busiest airport in all of the world, as far as I recall. And how do I know it's the busiest airport in the world? Because I could hear every single damn plane landing during the entire broadcast of this event. The events happened. The racing was... The racers raced hard. There was some pushing and shoving in the women's race, in the uh, race in Atlanta, we can talk about that later when we get to the sadly recurring segment in Criterium Racing of unnecessary aggression slash unsportsmanlike conduct presented by Justin Williams, brought to you by Legion of Los Angeles. The news that spiraled out afterwards, after the racing was done, was that 20 of the riders, two-thirds of their uh, workforce had been fired. Eight months into their 12-month contract, after completing all of the races that they were required to do, they were fired. And then the very next day, after that news came out without any explanation from the NCL or even a response to the news stories, from various different media sources, the NCL announced that it would be starting a new team in 2024, an Atlanta team. Now, the two stories could be different. They could be separated. 
but in this situation, they can't be. We have heard in the past, because we know business works in far and mysterious ways, about a industry partner who has to lay off 10% of its workforce, but at the same time, they're building a multi-million dollar facility out in the Silicon Valley, whatever it happens to be. But in this case, the two are ostensibly linked. Bill, I've talked for a long time right there. Do you have any initial thoughts on, let's say, the quality of the racing that happened in August? I The, the quality. Here... I think we talked about the NCL, right? Wasn't I on an episode maybe after the first race? Yes. Did did the did the format change at all or was it still women race first? There's they accumulate some amount of points and then the men race and then they decide who won the event. The format changed it, it alternated so that the women raced first and then the men raced first. And in later editions, and they learned some lessons from the first race that they applied to the second and third race regarding the value of points so that the sprint finish had more value or the finish, excuse me, had more value than just three times the value of an ordinary lap. So there were rule changes, but the spirit of the promoter was, or the intent of the promoter remained the same, that it was a accumulation of points. So it, it, it remained that because I, I think the, uh, which I thought was in bad form, the broad, the, the commentators kind of teased the, the, the winner, the, no, not the winner, See, I made the same mistake. The woman who crossed the line first in their event that it was really meaningless. It was just the last lap and it really didn't change the outcome of anything. So why, silly person, would you post up like you've won a race? And I, I think at that moment, that's where the NCL lost me. Because I, I just think that, and and maybe it's, Maybe it goes back to what we were saying before. If you if you get immersed in this type of competition, then it clicks in your head and then you are like, okay, I get it now. I understand. It's actually me who just needed to learn how this was done. This is compelling. And I know I we have friends who were like, yeah, no, this was kind of cool and I got into this. But as as a casual, like I am for this type of racing, I, if that's the case, I need this every week. I need this more than once a week for it to click. It's, it's the, you know, two weeks to make a habit, you know, at minimum type thing, getting, getting it so spread out throughout the season and then having only three events. There was nothing that I was invested in, in the NCL. It didn't, it didn't reach out and and grab me. The most, most of what you heard was this was the 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 bad stuff the stuff that was going wrong that like you talked about it the the I saw I saw a lot of clips of, of the women getting into it at the end of that last race but I I'm not sure really that's what the promoters were hoping for so I don't know I like I like the out of the box thinking I like trying something new I loved and you all know because I drew, drove you crazy where I was like look at all this money this is amazing no other sport is is doing this and 
you rightfully so were like, we'll see if this actually happens and if this money is, you know, really paid out to these riders. And I think for a while they did. I think for before those 20 riders got fired, I, I'd assume that a lot of these folks probably made more money this year doing this than they did in the rest of their bike racing careers. So let me jump in right there because I think ironically you're correct. Um, we don't know what the actual salaries were for any specific riders, but we do know that there was a range between 30,000 or give or take and 70,000 that different riders were paid for their 12 months of work. And so if you assume like you would that the, top end riders, the ones who were paid 60 and 70 are more than likely the ones who were retained and not fired because they were the marquee talent to begin with. Then you're looking at an average salary somewhere like $40,000 a year. And with an average salary of $40,000 a year, that is $35,000 more than most criterium racers are going to make. And so if they were paid for eight months of work, they were paid for, you know, one third of the year. So they lost out on 13,000 and change. They're still out ahead. I thought that it was bad form on the part of the NCL to one, fire them after all their work had been done and two, offer them equity in the company as kind of a severance or an exchange, give us your bikes and equipment back and we'll give you equity in this company that just fired you. And anybody, in my opinion, anybody who's looking at signing a contract with the NCL for 2024 as a bike racer, you need to look at that course of dealing and think strongly about whether or not that's how you want to engage in this sport. And if you're willing to run the risk of getting fired within the 12 month period of time that your contract would be, but you still got paid every month at the end of the month for eight months. So, so here's, isn't this an opportunity? Yeah. I, I know this is just to be in the zeitgeist of what's going on in our country, the entertainment, the, the, the writers and it just, got a new contract, right? They're going back to work. They, they, it was actually, they did really well against the, uh, the streaming companies out there and they're, you know, the, the Netflix at all decided that, okay, for a little while, we won't let AI write, uh, movies and TV shows. So their strike ended. Actors are still on strike. We got auto workers on strike. This is such a small class of people. I, I, I wish that, and maybe it's out there and I, I just don't, you would know better than me, but they, they just have such a great opportunity to organize amongst themselves. And if they want to say, this is fine, we're going to keep the same, you know, you're going to give us the same amount of money, but th these contracts end the day the last race happens, unless it's like a two-year contract and then have some, some recompense in that contract. I know it's an at-will contract, but at the same time, you can have a penalty if they end it beforehand. I, I, I think that would be, but I also know as bike racers, it's just a beaten down class. So you take whatever you can get, you take whatever scraps you can get. But I think it's just such a, a, a really a ripe opportunity for 
there to be some leadership amongst the riders and to organize and to say, we will participate in your league if you, in a contract, do all of these things for all of us. You know, were there, were there different levels of contracts? Were some riders getting more than others or was it just a, a standard all for one? If that's the case, there's no reason not to bond together. And if all of those racers say, we're not doing it anymore, the level of racing goes down. Maybe the NCL doesn't care. Maybe they pick up scabs who are, you know, cat threes out there and cat twos and say, hey, congratulations, you're now a pro bike racer. But I don't think they will. That would be that would be super cool for that to happen. And that's the, uh, this is the one opportunity in domestic bike racing where, where we can do this. Cause this is an organization that at least says that they have money to invest here and they have a limited number of pool of talent to choose from. Does that, is that, is that just pie in the sky? No, I don't think it's pie in the sky. I think it's an accurate representation of where this labor force is. The problem that I foresee is that the only way that negotiations are adequate or fair is if the riders band together and do organize. Because otherwise you've got well-heeled investors with a centralized focus, a CEO or president who is business savvy enough to acquire seven million dollars worth of capital investment versus a 22 year old who may have just finished college or maybe understands a little bit about how the world works and is not necessarily even making enough money for him or herself to afford the lawyer to look at it you know it only works if everybody gets together and yeah there will be scabs i you know there's always there is always the person who's willing to sell themselves for a much lower amount of money than you're than they should legitimately or reasonably be able to or willing to sell themselves for. But if the Johnny Clark's Clever Martinez's, the, you know, Daniele Garcia's, if they all honestly got together and said, these are the things that we want out of this organization, they would have power. The problem is, is I don't think anybody, especially after this first year and especially after the bad blood that has been built up between the NCL riders and the non-NCL teams, will support them anymore. I'll be very interested to see what happens to the riders who were fired. You know, where do they go? Who do they end up with? Or do they just ride off into the sunset and, you know start playing competitive pickleball or combat juggling. Don't they just go to crit? They could go to crit, uh, which is in and of itself an entire discussion with no substance. We know that crit is happening October 21 in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we know the names of teams and one of my uh, one of the followers of the podcast on Instagram pointed out that all of the names, all the logos for the crit teams were done in impact font. They're clearly marketing a unified vision of impact font. I don't cool. That's great. 
I'm glad that you guys got a bulk deal on that. But you brought it up, so you get to own it. Justin Williams, Littleton, Colorado. He has been suspended for two months. Effective April of 2024 through June of 2024, which conveniently will allow him to race Tulsa, which is the big thing in June. He was suspended for what I will paraphrase as unsportsmanlike conduct. He intentionally, according to a version of uh, a decision from USA Cycling that I saw that dealt specifically with Tom Gibbons, but from that version, paraphrasing again, Justin intentionally deviated from his race line going through a corner in order to force Tom Gibbons off of his teammate and I believe brother's wheel, Corey Williams, and put him out of competition at that point in time. A crash ensued. Tom Gibbons was injured and ended up going to the hospital and uh, said some unnice things and used profane language directed at Justin Williams, for which he was fined. There have been videos. There was video analysis. The meme accounts are all over the place on this one, doing God's work as far as I'm concerned, filling in that very important and critical role of a sardonic, witty, satire-like commentary that you would get from the late night shows, the Seth Meyers and the Stephen Colbert's. Great on them. This incident demonstrates for the 1,000th time this year or in the last three years, the tremendous value of actually having an independent media within cycling. The Justin Williams suspension story would never have broken but for the hard work of Logan Jones Wilkins, local Richmond boy, turned good, junior reporter for GCN, who wrote the first article, which took two weeks to catch on. Wrote an incredible follow-up after the fact. Bill, preaching to the choir, but independent cycling media... It, it, the media needs to tell the story. The story never and should not come from social media pages of teams and riders. Uh, I think that social media pages of teams and riders is a, an important component to the whole story. I, I, I don't think that we should say that that shouldn't exist. I, I think that most people are savvy enough to understand that that is a biased version of what happened. But I think a lot of times we get unfiltered takes of what's happening that in the past we didn't have. So I, I, I still, I still want that to exist, but I also am glad that this reporting is done and it is rare because there is an incentive you know, we can, there is an incentive within cycling media and why we always stress that we are independent, not to be independent because it is a, such a small community with such fickle pocketbooks that if you 
go too far criticizing a decision, a team, a rider, then you uh, could possibly lose the backing of that rider's bike manufacturer or components or whatever else. And that is going to hurt the bottom line and possibly make it so that your publication doesn't exist anymore. That's kind of what we've, what we've seen, you know, I mean, traditional journalism is that there is a wall between editorial and advertising and, and they don't talk to each other. And then people who advertise, a hundred years ago in newspapers understood that. And that was, you know, someday they may uh, come under fire. Jeff Bezos may come under fire in the Washington Post. I think he understands that. It's not going to affect him. He doesn't care. He owns the world. But at the same time, that does happen. Here, I think that we need clear voices telling an unbiased story. And that's really hard because the people who are not the team have all picked sides on social media, right? I mean, there's no, there really is no clear independent voice who's scared, who's not scared to say, this is what really happened. It may not be a popular opinion, but here are all the facts. And that's, uh, I'm glad that happened. But at the same time, I, I, you know, Legion is really complicated. I, I think that the Justin has made some bad decisions, right? I mean, he's suspended a couple times now. I think that Justin is also under a lot of pressure and he's trying to build this thing. And and I I can see what the the way i look at legion the way i look at the williams brothers for the, what they are criticized for i look at also the other side especially in our part of the world rob in the dc region this legion ta- team has done more for local bike racing in washington dc where they're not even from than any other team you know when you show up to the Air Force Classic, what used to be a 95% white dude fan base out there has drastically changed and has become diverse in not only the color of the skin watching, but the gender as well. It is a family event. People come out because they want to see the Williams brothers. They want to support Legion. And from that, in the minority communities in the DMV area, we see rising stars on bikes, racing bikes. And I I think you have to give what the Williams have done at least some credit for that. And that's that has to be, that is not to forgive or to, to take off the balance sheet anything that they've done that is a mistake or is wrong or is negative. But I think it definitely to say these guys just need to go away, which I think you hear a lot in these meme accounts and everywhere else. I think it's a, it's a, it's a more difficult discussion in that because I do believe and it may not be a popular opinion to, for your listeners, but I do believe that they have done 
a lot of good for the sport. It may not be on the level of the Criterium racers that they're up against or on that stage, but in the larger community, I, I, I see it. I see it, and I think it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, Justin himself has over 120,000 Instagram followers. His influence and reach is tremendous. Uh, I saw a guy today, just a random dude out riding in a two or three year old Legion kit, white guy, you know, some guy I see all the time, typically in his Dartmouth kit, but today he was in the blue Legion kit. So the influence that these two brothers have had on the sport and how they've encouraged and shaped and promoted others who are also coming from non-traditional bike racing socioeconomic groups is, is undisputable. This is his second suspension in two years, both for unsportsmanlike conduct. Do I in any way, shape, or form think that he intentionally meant to crash himself and Tom Gibbons out to prove a point. No, I, I, I do having watched it and having watched Jonathan Crane's breakdown of it and some other people who've taken a deeper, more forensic look at it. You know, it looks like it was just something that went too far. He definitely intentionally deviated from his line and meant to take Tom Gibbons to the curb. That's, that's one thing going to the ground. I think that's just garden variety, negligence, gross negligence, reckless, not intentional. The last point that we need to discuss is the apology, non-apology, no contrition response that he issued uh, after all this was done. And I'll quote, last month in the heat of Littleton Twilight Crit, I was involved in an accident with a fellow rider. Never in my life have I ridden with the intent to cause harm. This is high-speed crit racing. Real-time judgments are made in fractions of a second, and unfortunately, sometimes accidents happen. I keep my head high and will continue my mission to promote safe environments, educate riders of all ages, and advance diversity, equity, and inclusion within this sport. Sincerely, Justin Williams. I don't think that's just, that's just not good enough. As far as an apology, that's not good enough because it isn't an apology. There's no admission of wrong. There's no feeling of sorriness. There's no contrition. There's just, this happened. I was involved. I'm going to keep doing the good stuff that I have been doing. Does an apology need an admission? That's an excellent question. In you can apologize for causing somebody harm. He could have done that, right? But he didn't have to say. I don't think as a as a, as I don't think he can go just to tell somebody who has dedicated their life to racing bikes that in order for you to clear your name, you have to say that you tried to intentionally hurt somebody. I think that's a bar too high. I don't think anybody is going to do that, right? I mean, that's just in his, I, I believe in his heart, he was not trying to injure Tom. And I completely agree. 
was was he as his team seems to do and this is just in how i see it bully other riders out there and is that their style yes absolutely that is they are you don't mess with them and they make that absolutely clear is that right in crit racing i don't know you tell me you're the you're the expert on this but that is it i will ask you this other question because i know just again cyclocross that because a lot of the riders who are on this team also race mean the the mccormick brothers for instance saturn saturn were the biggest meanest bullies in domestic bike racing that we've seen in a long time i mean i know there are others but they just stand out for me they were revered they were, I'm sure if you raced against them, they weren't revered. I'm sure that all of these conversations that we're hearing about Legion were also being said about Saturn. I mean, they they perfected the Saturn sit-up. It's one of the most, I don't want to call it dirtiest, but kind of like scummiest moves you can do in a bike race. But it was beautiful and it worked. And they were like big enough and strong enough and fast enough and dominant enough that they were able to do that kind of stuff. If you don't know what that is, they'd let one they they'd have their lead out and then one guy would keep going and everybody else would just, you know, sit up basically and he would go and win the race. But they were able to create that situation. They did they pushed people into the barriers. They you did not get on that train. You know, you did at your own risk. There also wasn't social media. And there wasn't GoPros. There weren't GoPros. All of these things didn't exist. Is that a good thing? Is it better now? I don't know. I'm just saying that take the race component out of this because I think that's what gets in the way here. And you look at this team and you look at teams in the past and people want to say these guys are doing things differently. They're not doing it in the spirit. They're not They're not with holding up the traditions of the sport. I say, I, I think they are. I think this is what the sport has been. I think that you look at crit racers, they want to think of themselves as gladiators. They want to think of them as the toughest bike racers out there. Hey, we might crash at 40 miles per hour, you know, but that's what we do. That, that's kind of, I know that I'm making a caricature out of it, but that's kind of the mentality that a lot of the people in your sport take on. And these guys are kind of at the top of that. Is it right? I don't know, but it's not unique. It's not new. So your question about do, do you have to make an admission of culpability in order for you to have an apology, I don't believe that this was an intentional crashing. I think this was an intentional dangerous riding. I think it was an intentional maneuver. In a plea colloquy with a criminal defendant, you read as the prosecutor the charge. If we had gone to trial, we would have proven that on X day at this corner or this location within the jurisdiction of the court, the defendant did X, Y, and Z. And then the judge says in response, Mr. or Ms. So-and-so, did you hear what the prosecution happened to say? Yes, I heard. Do you admit that you did these things? Yes. Now, you can get into nolo contendere, and you can get into 
uh, Anderson pleas and things like that, Alford pleas, excuse me, and things like that, where you're not admitting. But for the most majority of criminal plea colloquies, you admit that you did the things that you've been accused of. Do you have to say, I'm sorry? No. Does it help when it comes to sentencing? For sure. But if you are trying to maintain, you're trying to be the influencer, you're trying to be the guiding light, when you do something wrong, when you do something that runs afoul of the rules to the extent that you have been punished, respond appropriately. Admit that you did something wrong. Admit that you are sorry for it. Apologize to the people who you, through negligence or not, hurt. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree with that. I think that you can you can definitely apologize for a wrong decision. But I I, I just think that that you know he and he's the one who framed it. He's the one that brought up the straw man about intending to hurt somebody. You know that didn't even have to come into play. So that's kind of like taking it to a different level. Without yeah, you can apologize for, you know, making a bad decision that, that somebody got hurt. But, you know, the the other thing, going back to your criminal law thing, I mean, the first thing you learn in your criminal law class, which is obvious now, since for years we've been watching law and order is that you don't plead innocent. You plead not guilty, right? There's a difference. So it's, you were setting out these charges. It's like, well, was there premeditation in this? Was there, there are all of these other, other factors. I don't want to get into a criminal procedure course. It's, it was way too long ago. Oh, come on. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. You get into the elements of the crime and then you have to fight over it. Uh, I do miss the days as a prosecutor, uh, but I don't miss the hours. That's all to say that. Yes. I, I, I think that that was an instant in which, he could have maintained no intent to harm Tom, but at the same time, in the heat of the battle, I made some bad decisions or I made some wrong decisions. And, and I don't think that, I don't think that hurts you in any way. I, I, I truly believe that copping to mistakes is, is, is the easiest way to, de-escalate and to get out of things. I think that pride gets in the way of so much that we do. And in the end, it, it doesn't matter. Nobody's holding it against you. And then the other person feels better. And then you just go on with your life. I mean, that's kind of like such, that's the, you know, that's the easiest thing to do. I don't think I've ever been in an argument at work because somebody's like, I, why did you, I was like, Sorry, I'll change it. We'll move forward. No rearview mirror. We're just moving forward. And that's, I think if people do that in all walks of life, now we're getting into philosophy. Uh, it's, it's much easier. It's much easier to live your life. So, but I, I get it too. I, I, no, I don't get it, but I don't know if it's, it's identity based. I don't know if it's like, this is who we've built ourselves up to be. I don't know if it's like, you know, we take no quarter. I don't know. I don't know anything again, much like that. Uh, cyclocross promoter. I do not know the intent. I am not in Justin Williams head, but I also think that we are in an environment where apologizing is no longer and never good enough. Like I want to see 
if you don't think an apology is good enough, I want you to write out for me what the apology must say for you to accept it. And then after that said, I want you to actually accept it. Because I think that people say that somebody has to say X, Y, and Z, yet in their heart, they're still not going to accept that apology, no matter what it says. Because then you just get into it's like, well, that was just written by their PR person. So there's no winning in apologizing. That's kind of part of it, too. And it's sad, but that's kind of the, the reality in the environment we live in. And since we've delved into philosophy, I think it's time for us to call it a night. I think we've arrived at that point. I, I think that is good. I, I hope that, um, well, I, I will say this, Rob. And this is kind of, if, if we want to be philosophical about these things, I think a lot of the conversations that I, I, I now have, if it's on Cyclocross Radio, even I just put out another episode of the CX Heat Check Power Rankings, go on YouTube, go check that out. A lot of these things are for me. And I just like having the conversations. And I like to, to sort of tell my little jokes. And if people also want to watch them and enjoy them or listen to them amazing welcome aboard but i i understand that that it may not be for everybody so that that is all to say i enjoyed our conversation rob i'm glad that we get this opportunity to talk it's a podcasting cliche that unless we turn the microphones on we're never really seeing each other and having these long conversations so this this was great i i enjoyed it thank you for having me on thank you Bill.